in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the CEO of Law in Sport. If you haven't tuned in before, the Law in Sport podcast is here to help you understand the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, as well as get to know some of the key personalities who work tirelessly behind the scenes to keep sports running and in for today's show, help make it a better environment for people to participate and contribute to sport. Today I'm joined by Jonathan Herschler, who's a co-founder and CEO of an ethical data service company, Signify Group, and Nick Iliff, who's a senior manager for integrity services at Stats Perform. Hi, Sean. How are you doing, guys? Afternoon. The reason why we're here today in your lovely new offices at Stats Perform, which I have to say are wonderful, so thanks for inviting me over to do this. I received a press release, I think probably a month or so ago now, about a partnership between Stats Perform and Signify that was something that was both timely and important in terms of tackling issues around and actually combating online abuse. But particularly the thing that resonated with me has been, as you guys all know, has been to do with issues around racism in particular, but other forms of discrimination as well. And I just thought, well, that's really interesting because I knew that Stats Performance, you're a big data company, you do loads with different uh, rights holders around the world. Uh, you've got an integrity service that you run, and we've had Jake Marsh before talk at our conferences. So, you know, we're very well versed in terms of what you're doing in that space. And I was just intrigued as into how that partnership came about and why it came about. Now, we've spoke privately about it, hence why now we've got the, the podcast, because I think it is something worthy of highlighting. So just to set the scene, Nick, maybe you wanted to start us off with how did this relationship come together and why? Sure. Um, well, thanks for having having us both on, Sean. Um yeah, I think, I think kind of to start off, I think there's this whole kind of piece around, I think when we think of sports integrity, I think historically that's quite often been dominated by kind of anti-doping and, and anti-match fixing. And for quite a long time, I think that's the only two things that really got thought of really. Um, but I think in the last couple of years, I think people accepted that that's broadened out a lot more and, you know, it now falls under things like um, player welfare, safeguarding, financial governance, um, so, you know, we were aware of that and, and, and how this is kind of changing. And so, sorry, for background as yep. well, I should have said this introduction, so forgive me, but obviously your background is you've got a, a, a long history of working in integrity, um, both in the sports sector, outside of the sports sector, and particularly intelligence management is kind of, you know, an, an understanding and monitoring intelligence and gathering yeah. um, is your sort of expertise. You've been in anti-doping, law enforcement. So when you're talking about that shift, you're not just talking about in the immediate term since being a stats before, you're you're talking about this more broadly in terms of your career have you seen it sort of develop yeah I think so yeah I mean yeah like like you say my background in intelligence investigations kind of moved over time from law enforcement into the kind of sports integrity side um via initially um well UK anti-doping then onto onto stats perform so yeah the kind of anti-doping and then then the anti-match fixing side um but yeah I think we have seen it broaden out somewhat and, um, you know, we, like you say, we have um, major rights holders, federations, et cetera, who, who are clients, both of our various services we have here and of our, our integrity services. And this was something that was coming up on calls with, with clients. And they were asking us, you know, what would, can you help with this issue at all? Do you have any services in this area? So it's something that we wanted to, to kind of offer. But then we looked at it. Is this something that we'd offer ourselves? And we looked at it. Well, it's not really our expertise in, in this area, but we still wanted to make sure we, we had a service to offer. So I think this was probably around the time, I, I think I might have seen the, um, the PFA report that um, Signify worked on. I'm sure Jonathan's going to come on to in more detail later, but saw that. I thought, wow, this is really, really interesting study. I hadn't seen any piece of research that had really gone into depth over what the actual kind of problem's looking like. 
Um, so I actually um, reached out to um, to the guy, the team at Signify through a through a mutual contact actually, um, and I'd say it's probably about maybe six months kind of discussions I would say, which which I think is really important because it gave us time to really understand how the two businesses work and to make sure that you know this was a relationship we both wanted it to enter into to check that we kind of aligned on our our integrity philosophy um which also i think shows that you know we, we didn't want to do something just for a press release and then it fizzle out and nothing happened about it so the kind of the the, the crux of it was we both have a similar philosophy i think around the, the, the integrity issues and, and again kind of coming back onto that whole intelligence-led area i've come into being proactive around these issues trying to get ahead of the problem um, and move from a kind of area across a lot of things of that kind of constant firefighting and crisis management to being a bit more proactive. And can I ask you then, so the people that you were talking to mm-hmm. about obviously your client uh, yeah. confidentiality, but obviously a lot of people just see you as, not just, just see you as though, but what you've got a strong reputation for being is this big sports tech company. Yeah. And so were the conversations coming from your clients who are on the tech side who are looking at this or were they coming from your clients who were on the integrity side saying we're having this across our desk um yeah we just don't know what to do with it you you guys are in tech this is part of this issue is coming through tech platforms can you help us i, I think probably more the latter um but it's understandable you know and, and i think we'll come on to this i think this is something we'll, we'll, we'll kind of talk about later on as well is that it's difficult. It, it does sit in different organisations. It sits in different areas, and this is a challenge with with this issue. Who who does it sit with? Does it need to sit with a specific area? Does it cut across various sectors? Um, so that's yeah, that's that's kind of what was happening. It was sometimes coming across the integrity team's desk of that various clients, and them asking us, "Well, look, is this something you can kind of um, help with?" So that that's the background, certainly from our side. Like I say, and we've it, it's been a a, a great relationship so far but yeah that six months I think was really helpful Jonathan let's hear from you then so can you give um, a bit of flavor because what Signified does more broadly at, in and outside of support and then what you've been doing with the PFA and, yeah. and with other organizations sure and, and actually Nick's just explained the sort of origins of the relationship really really well and uh, you know the way that you introduced him in terms of the list of knowledge and expertise that Stats Perform have got across sport um, is to a degree the gap that we had where we wanted to you know, join up and really try to understand how approaching the right people in the right departments in the right way, how, how does that work? And um, certainly Nick and, and Jake and you know, the integrity team at Stats Perform, they've got a huge amount of experience on how to do that and we're learning from that as we go along. So in terms of the partnership and why we've set that up, I think, and, and so just for background, to give you, just so people know, you've got sort of 20 years plus experience dealing in the sort of the political landscape, dealing in <laughs> uh, public relations, yeah. um, messaging, digital strategy. It's so messaging. It's, it's messaging. Yeah. My, my whole career has been about around how do you get a message across to the right audience and how do you make that hit home? And um, I started off in politics. I've worked, you know, uh, both, both sides of the political divide. Um, and then went into uh, public affairs, you say, and sort of political lobbying before I started up my own digital agency, ran that for 10 years and then sold it to an ad agency. And again, it's just all about a message. How do you get that message across? And we set up uh, Signify, which is a data science company, um, off the back of that because it was 2016. Um, Trump had just won in the US and I've been introduced to my now um, partners in the business and uh, one of them who was working at a really big media agency had just worked out a way of correctly predicting the outcome of the 2016 US election where nobody else 
did. And I was really intrigued by that. I sat, I was introduced to him. I sat down with him and we talked about how, how he did that and how he used um, social media data predominantly to understand what audiences were interested across the US, across different states, and made a calculation off the back of that for you know which states were going to go which way. Nobody got it right. Um, his team at the time, who happened to work for us now, um, his team at the time, um, even they didn't believe it. And he ended up on ITV, ITV News the evening of the election being asked the question, how did you get this right when no one else did? And even he was saying, I, we didn't believe it ourselves. Anyway, off the back of that, we realized there was something really powerful in understanding audiences on social media and drawing that information out, but doing it in the right way. So we call ourselves an ethical data science company for a reason. 2016 was also the year of Cambridge Analytica, and they were blowing up the world of, of data science for all the wrong reasons. We saw this opportunity to use publicly available open source data, not break anyone's privacy settings, and still use that data, really rich data, to help clients understand what audiences were most interested in. So it started off from there. A couple of years in, we realized we had another capability. If you can understand how a message activates an audience, it's also possible to track back where that message comes from. Um, and that was kind of the origins of what we call Threat Matrix, which is the, the service that we offer in sport at the moment to identify online abuse and discriminatory abuse um, across different sports. Um, and we've honed that over a couple of years. We've built it up, we've built it up. We've worked across a number of different sports, uh, all different levels. It was interesting, you were asking Nick just now about who do you go and speak to? Who are the people who are most interesting within the different organizations? Honestly, that's been our biggest single problem um, as we've been developing this product because they all sort of pass it around like a hot potato. Uh, we have spoken to heads of security, heads of communication, um, you know, social media teams, data analysis teams, just you name it, we've spoken to them within all kinds of sports organizations. No one's quite sure who should be dealing with this problem. And a lot of them don't want to deal with the problem. Lots of heads of security and certainly don't want to deal with the problem. This is the similar with, so just to, just to um, uh, really elaborate for people, because we've gone straight in, yeah. that's you know, my fault as a host. You know, as I mentioned <laughs> earlier, I warned you guys about this, um, that the, um, the, what we're talking about here, as we saw with the Euros final, you know, abuse being targeted at people, whether they are elite athletes, whether they're members of staff of sports organisations, they are abusive messages. They are, you know, the ones that we we spoke a lot about were particularly around, you know, racist, discriminatory use of language and attacks on people. Therefore, something happens, and it's kind of, uh, and I guess everyone's adjusting to this digital world anyway. And then it was a case of from your saying is like now whose whose responsibility is there. And there's a, a plethora of different issues that are raised from it. You've got the mental health issues, the, the employment law, potentially issues there. Are you doing enough to protect? You know, all the stuff going on with Yorkshire Cricket Club at the moment. Brand. Which is your brand. You know, all those, you know, type of things that are taking place. And, and what's interesting from when we spoke before was the fact that your deep understanding, of course, of the mechanics of how this works was the thing that I thought was interesting. But much like with law in sport when it started, a lot of people didn't really understand how we could be useful because they weren't necessarily ready to have access to that type of content uh they didn't know you know there was like hey we know what the problem is that's fine not realizing that we you know, need more collaboration and more collaborative understanding in order to make the 
you know the the application of law and regulation and good governance put in practice it seems to me that whilst we're starting to get a handle a bit better understanding anyway of safeguarding anti-doping certainly this this area is again it's infancy and, and to be blunt a lot of these organizations uh, we've talked about this privately and i think we're all happy to I imagine we're happy to go on the record on this, that they don't have the budgets in those areas that you think they would. They're not resourced in the areas. So, uh, you know, is that is that a correct sort of assessment? Yeah, of it is, it is. But it's also about educating them in terms of, I mean, for example, the budgets, I'm not going to go into huge mm. detail, but the budgets are not massive. You do not need to spend a lot of money to deal with the problem that we're dealing with, particularly the route that we take where a lot of the information is out there and it's public and you're just looking for it and you're trying to protect players and athletes by seeing what's out there, identifying it, and then just giving advice as to what you can do about it. So, you know, the budgets aren't absolutely ginormous. You don't have to have millions of pounds to deal with this issue. The problem has been, where do those budgets come from? Um, you know, if you go through the list of different departments that we just talked about, it get, that gets moved around just as much as who's taking responsibility for it. So, again, I go back to what I was saying. It's an educational piece and, and uh, supporting some of these clients to help them understand what's possible and how they can deal with it and how they can deal with it for not very much money and also what they can do themselves it seemed, it seemed to me that you know we talked about this again uh, before but safeguarding being the issue that it's widely recognized that if it's not a board level it's not a priority right and unless you have someone whose responsibilities is to deal with a board level it doesn't trickle down the organization and there's you know football has responded much better particularly domestically at least to that and there's still work to be done there but you know given the stake of not historical non-recent i think is the word to, to the correct way to say it, abuse uh and the, these brave survivors and depending on how they want to define themselves survivors or victims who have dealt with this issue right it's become they've come out and they've spoken out about it and now we've got very brave individuals who are coming out like the you know the raheem sterling's others who are pointing out these different things but it doesn't seem like it's really anyone's responsibility currently anyway at least um, and again, if, if there are people listening to this and they're saying, actually, no, our board of directors have got someone who's, who's, who's clearly responsible for this, please do get in contact and let us know because it would be great. We can share that information. It'd be really, I think, the, the other guys are nodding. It'd be really good for us to share that. And so, right, so we've got that right. So at the moment, there's a lack of responsibility. Who, who's really got ownership over it? Who should be taking action of it? Whether they should be taking action, I guess, in the first place and what action would be available. Right, let's say there's a scenario where you're working with all, well, first of all, stop, let me pause. Can you just talk about the work you did on the PFA report before we actually get into the, some of the, the, sure. the, the more detailed mechanics? Sure, yeah, and it will it will expose some of the issues as well because um, uh, there was a lot of stuff on there that we identified that you know we weren't necessarily looking for. Um, so the PFA, uh, we were put in contact with them um, about two and a, two years ago uh, via Kick It Out, actually, who we'd done a little bit of work with initially and kick it out and the pfa together jointly sponsored the first exercise that we did which was across uh, project restart so six weeks of football behind closed doors quite a unique situation um across june and july 2020 and the, the homework question that we were being asked was um there are no fans in the stadium we know that online abuse is a bit of a problem does the veil of anonymity that the fans already have being able to you know type on their mobile phone whilst they're in the stadium, um, get much worse when they're not even in the stadium and they're at home doing this. So you're adding an extra layer of protection for the, the bad actors out there to send this abuse. 
will it go up in size and scale if everyone's at home watching TV and you've got all these keyboard warriors who can start sending abuse? The answer to that homework question was yes, it did go up. Um, that was only a representative sample we looked at. We looked at we covered 44 players, predominantly Premier League players, um, but just off the back of that six weeks of football. Um, we covered 825,000 tweets and off the back of that found thousands of examples of online abuse, lots of interesting patterns. I think we were one of the first sort of studies to really explain the issue of emojis being used as um, uh, abusive terms, you know, a monkey emoji, a banana emoji being sent to a black footballer. We all know what that means, um, but someone who's doing moderation for Twitter or Facebook in, you know, um, East Coast US maybe doesn't have the same context and understanding of that. So we started to uncover those things. Fast forward a year, um, and we then did a much, much bigger study, which is the one that Nick was referring to earlier on, again for the PFA, where we had month to month gone through um, 700 plus professional footballers across the country, across the UK, uh, covered them looking at publicly available data, predominantly Twitter, what's being targeted at those 700 plus players. Um, and this time we covered over 6 million tweets. So it was a much, much bigger study. In fact, I think it's probably the biggest single study that's that, that's actually taken place so far. Um, and uh, we then continued it for another month to cover, as you mentioned earlier, the, the Euros. We're glad we did. Um, there was a lot of very useful information and quite upsetting information that came off the back of that. But the, the key findings of it were if you looked at um, the levels of abuse that we identified on the first day of the season, racist abuse specifically, and then fast forwarded to the last day of the season, you would see a trend line that just goes up across the season. And you know it, got, it was worse at the end of the season than it was at the beginning of the season. And that's a season that incorporated the uh, social media boycott, uh, taking a knee, all kinds of protests, campaigns, all these things that all the football authorities were doing, the FA, the Premier League, PFA, everybody, kick it out. Um, and yet the problem seemed to be getting worse. And the second key finding on this was around moderation. What are the platforms actually doing about this? And again, the, the news was quite bad. If you look at the first half of the season versus the second half of the season in terms of moderation of tweets. So that this is Twitter identifying the racist homophobic, discriminatory um, tweets that we were identifying, Twitter identifying those and then taking them down, in the first half of the season they were actually better at doing it than they were in the second half of the season. So if you look at all the things that they released, they released a number of new services in February um, of this year, um, as did Instagram, but actually the impact of those has not been good enough and you know we saw more things being left up at the end of the season than at the beginning of the season. So again, it seems, I won't say it's gone backwards. There's been a lot of good, positive, um, you know, initiatives being taken by a lot of the platforms, which we welcome. But actually, if you look at the overall numbers, the problem has not been getting better. It's been getting worse overall. I've got quite a strict view on this uh, from, from running, obviously, a tech we well, websites. And, and you know, been interested in this sort of arena for a while is that the, from a tech company perspective, I've said it for a long time that they could do it they could do a much better job if they had the right people in the room having the right conversations at the right time with the with developers who are writing the code uh, yeah. to deal with it. Because we dealt with this in forums 
Yeah, we've had but online it, forums for years where we've dealt with these moderation issues. It's not new. But it's also about context. And um, again, we're talking about the knowledge that, say, Stats Perform have around sport and the knowledge that we've been picking up as we've been working on this project, really understanding the different issues that are associated to different clubs or tribes of clubs um, and, you know, different parts of the game. So, you know, the women's game um, is very different from the men's game in terms of issues and the things that we're picking up and the abuse that's being hurled. Um, and we're identifying those things. Again, will a Goliath social media platform, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, will they have the time, energy, effort? They've definitely got the resources, but do they have the focus to look at those nuanced issues that are going on particularly in football or tennis or rugby or all these different sports. And do you think, um, I'm going to, you know, one of the things that you mentioned, sorry, Nick. No, yeah, I was, I was sorry, I was, I was just going to say that. And this it's this kind of piece that is exactly what we were interested in, really why we wanted to partner with Signify and why I think it's so important. Because as Jonathan says, you know, there isn't, this isn't a one-size-fits-all problem, you know. We're talking about different sports, you know, different clubs, are, 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 you know, a club's, demographic of players or demographics of fans is going to change potentially what that problem is and you know unless you can get a grasp whether that's as a sport whether that's a club who, whoever is the kind of stakeholder over what your specific problem is how can you really put the put the um, resources and things in place to try and take action um, otherwise I think as, as we discussed previously Sean you, you end up in this kind of almost whack-a-mole situation where yes you can try and take down these accounts you can try and identify who who all the other accounts are but you know, you really need to try and, again, that proactive side of, well, what is the problem look like? What are the, and I think, I'm sure Jonathan will come onto this later as well, but what are the kind of trigger points? What What is causing this to spike? And if there is something that's going to cause something to spike, what kind of prevention c- can you put in? Can you put around that wraparound duty of care around, you know, if you're a club around some of your players, if you know that this might be a spike coming up? And I think that comes back onto what, you know, I think we'll get onto this. What can clubs and stakeholders actually do to to, to kind of, yeah, for, for this service to empower them. I think also to, do, to do digress slightly, I think in the past it's quite often gone right, say it's been handed over to law enforcement, for example. Now, that's the right thing to do, yeah, when there's, when the, but it has to be, you know, if, if you're coming at it from a law enforcement perspective, it's going to have to hit a certain criteria for them to be able to take a case forward and prosecute. You know, there are also, this is an incredibly serious problem, but it is also going to fight for resources alongside other issues. It's the scale of the issues at the moment, yeah. right? Particularly in the digital world, the police are absolutely, law enforcement around the world, are struggling to deal with the yeah. scale of the, the these type of issues amongst many others. Right? Like, I would say if, if you're a cyber criminal at the moment, it's probably a good time because you're probably going to get away with it, uh, at least for a period. Yeah, the, the, the amount of, the sheer amount of information that you're having to look at. But yeah, I think it's that, there's this is and and certain things that the threat matrix service provides is almost empowering the sports stakeholders to be able to take some action themselves which you know alongside that law enforcement piece that's always going to be there but there are some really interesting pieces and actions i think that clubs federations etc can can take and i think i'm sure jonathan's got some some good examples of ones that that real well real world examples maybe sanitized but that have actually come through in that situation jonathan i I think we've certainly seen in terms of law enforcement i sure and i agree with exactly what you've just said that you know the weight and the volume of all of this stuff that's going on out there it's almost impossible to deal with at the scale that, that they're picking it up where we have spoken to um you know to to law enforcement experts and um you know criminal prosecution experts we've been pleasantly surprised by the will 
um, to deal with this and the efforts that they have been putting in. I think some some of the groups, I won't go into detail of who exactly, but some of the groups that we've been working with and we've, we've spoken to, they've been amazing on this issue. Um, but as you say, they don't have the levels of resource that are really required. But that's where we think we can help because you know we've got an AI solution. It, it's, it's based on machine learning. We can help to identify in you know all this noise that's out there where you can really take action, where you can really create some of those deterrents that matter that will actually. Can you talk have about that because I yeah, think it's interesting. Can Nick mention this as well? I'd love to know. Um, you know, one of the things that I've always yeah we talked about this when we spoke the first time. One of the things I've always found surprising is the again addressing the problem statement or identifying what the problem statement actually is. What are we trying to solve here? One of the things that struck me was from a commercial perspective, there's instructions given to media around where they focus their attention, how they report on people ambushing uh, events. So the Bavarian uh, ladies, as such as the example of South Africa. But, you know, I remember one of the England matches where a lot of the, you know, far right actors who were there, who were, you know, involved in racist abuse were not only given profile by the live TV cameras, they were also giving them profile in the media and it was seemed to me that it obviously would be a, a huge win for them to get that level of attention and attract other people and so you were talking about that spike in the euros and if you're seeing you know if there are extreme groups of any nature who have who are putting out their views um particularly if they're you know it's like a call to action let's say if you're you know someone who wants to be racist and you're going hey you know i strongly believe in these views and you get it out there and other people start to retweet it call it out it has this actually uh you know the unintended consequence of actually encouraging it rather than deterring it and likewise with some of the campaigns that have been very good that have gone on sometimes you wonder if they're actually having a negative impact at times by not being focused enough so let me jump straight onto that one then because the i mentioned the social media boycott that took place um uh, in sort of i think it was the weekend of march april uh, april may early this year um the biggest spike of abuse that we saw, forget the Euros for a second, just looking at domestic um, UK football, um, the biggest spike of abuse that we saw came uh, just after that social media boycott took place. Now, I'm not associating it to that. There was actually an incident that took place that led to that that spike, which had nothing to do with the social media boycott. But the, the timing of that was suspect, definitely. And, um, you know, there, there, are, there are definitely organizations out there groups networks out there who feed on this who um, want to try and benefit from the amplification that they can get out of these things and we're seeing a lot of that but it's how do you stop that from happening and how do you cut them off at the knees to prevent them from from gaining that attention and I think the only way to do it really is to put some deterrence out there and to try and stop this from happening uh, in the first place and we need more of that the problem I think in the game at the moment is and this is not just football i think throughout sport the preventative measures that are there there's not enough of them the issue is that it's a victim-led process so you've got uh, a piece of abuse that's being sent via you know uh, a direct message on instagram or, or a public message on twitter to a professional footballer usually when they've had a bad game um, you know there is there is definitely a trend in terms of you play poorly you're going to get abuse doesn't always work that way uh, but let's say you're that footballer and let's humanize this for a second because I often get told off by my colleagues I don't do that enough I'm very focused on the data but let's put a human face to this you you come home you're a professional footballer 
you've had a rubbish game, uh, you've lost, it's an important match and you've not had the best performance ever. You sit down with your family and your, your kids and suddenly you start receiving all of this abuse. I mean, that is absolutely horrendous. That is absolutely horrendous. But it happens and it happens at scale. And we've spoken to professional footballers right at the top of the game who have some of the footballers that, that, that you know, you I think we're referring to who um, will call some of this out. They might put it on their feeds and say, look, this is what I'm receiving. I spoke to one this week who um, very recently published a couple of the um, messages that he'd received. And he told us, you know, that was only uh, a selection that I chose from. I get thousands of these after a match, thousands of these. I was just making a point. You know, it's a really, really big problem. And dealing with it requires a switch round in process. At the moment, I call it victim-led because it's down to that player who's just received that abuse, who's just had a really rubbish match. Um, it's down to them to report it. There are reporting systems in place. You know, The Premier League have got, got a reporting system in place and they encourage people to send information through it and we encourage people to send information through it as well. Um, but th th those reporting processes are dependent on the player reporting it. The police will then pay a visit to that player they want a victim impact statement. This is the, these are elite athletes who don't really want to spend their time filling out forms, talking to the police, submitting, you know, thousands. If if it's true and they're getting thousands and thousands of messages, they're not going to submit all of those through to reporting systems. They just want someone but to but take care of it. Yeah, on that point, and this is why I find DB frustrating. You know, if we looked at it from a policing perspective, right? The you know the best thing to do is prevent crime from happening in the first place, as you said about the preventive measure. I remember tweeting out. My dad was a policeman. I saw some policing on a. a, a I think it's Bianca Williams was the athlete. Oh, forgive me if it's the wrong athlete, but uh, she she was in the back of a car of a partner. And there may be more to this story. I don't know is the answer. But what I did see was the police pull over this gentleman who was her husband. They tried to get him to stop. He didn't stop for whatever reasons. He pulled over anyway. It was the level of aggression that was towards. And I understand that they were scared potentially as, as officers you know they, they got a very difficult job but there was a lady with a baby in the back and at that point they still didn't calm down and they were being very aggressive so I put out a tweet and said look I don't know if this was racist or not I don't even think I even mentioned the point that it was racist it was alleged that it was racially motivated which it may have well been Either way, it was bad policing, in my opinion, in terms of the person needed more training. You know, you know, uh, knowledge they're doing a very difficult job, so I'm not trying to be critical of them. They're doing a much better job than I probably ever could. However, I then got trolled. This is a nobody, right? And but I, I knew enough about how these things work and tech to, to pick up patterns. To be, oh, this person's not got anyone following them. They're following 120 people. I look at their timeline, and it was probably about 20, 30 different people. But then ultimate messages coming up, you're woke, you're this, da, 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 da. Now, if you're a high-profile celebrity or anyone who's, you know, for me, I just knew what it was, that it was bots or groups of people doing that, and I just didn't ignite it or do anything, I just let, let it blow over. But it was a part of me, it was like, oh, no, here we go. Here's the, and previously, I have been trolled by Galatasaray fans years ago for match-fixing stuff. For, 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 like, and that was pretty extreme as well, where they just sort of like bombard your Twitter account. But... The point is that, that I, I knew that I wasn't in any danger, any real threat. But if you're an athlete, people know who you are. You know, that's a, you know, you've got family, you know, and you're a very public profile in that. It's a very different scenario. And who's protecting you? Yeah. yeah. Who, who's going to protect you? And, 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 and actually, we see that difference a, a lot across the different sports that we're dealing with. So 
football where obviously we've done a lot of work, you know, certainly with the, the work we've done with the PFA and a number of clubs, you've kind of got a level of protection around you. You've got the club, you've got your teammates, you've got staff, you've got, you know, you've got a decent level of protection around you where you don't feel completely out there by yourself and isolated. Other sports, less so. Uh, athletics, tennis, um, you know, or sports like that uh, where, you know, everyone thinks back to, I'm old enough and ugly enough to remember sort of Monica Sellers and, you know, those kinds of incidents. You are out there by yourself. You are out there by yourself. And if you're receiving abuse online and someone's telling you they're going to come and hurt you, threatening to kill you, you take it really seriously. But who's there to protect you? Who's there to prevent this from happening and to capture this stuff and to report it properly? There's not enough structure out there. Some of the organizations we're working with are really good. Some of them are trying to put this in place. Some have got very good measures in place. Um, but a lot more needs to be done, particularly on the preventative side. And the other thing I'll add in, the service we've got is called Threat Matrix for a reason. Uh, when we first set it up, we wanted to try and see if we could identify the difference in a message between threat and just abuse or discriminatory abuse. So we are looking specifically for threat, and we're very good at identifying that that as well, and then what you do with it um, in terms of working with... And so, so bringing in Nick again, so what happens then, so you guys are working together, obviously you're used to dealing with, obviously one of them, you know, you're both in the intelligence, <laughs> sounds funny, doesn't it? We're in, you know, it was a Team America, intelligence, <laughs> uh, going on, but the, um, you're both in the, <laughs> the intelligence space. I'm not in the intelligence space, you make from that what you want, but the, um, <laughs> um, you're used to sort of you know, capturing this data, you know, analyzing this data, knowing what to do with it. From your perspective as stats perform, working with your clients, right? So now you've got this partnership. You're saying that we can understand that when there's a, you know, a, a, a genuine threat, we can understand where there's harm. We can understand, or better understand, I should say, where there's harm and there's some action need to be taken. Then it's coming over to, and you know, I know it's a partnership. So you're working in synergies, but from a stats perform perspective and an integrity services perspective, how then? Do you guys intersect? Because, you know, more broadly as well, you care about, you know, commercially, about the reputation of sport, the perception of sport, obviously, because you've invested very heavily in it over the years, right? So you've got, not only have you got the integrity side, but you've also got a broader, you know, this make the sports environment a much better environment anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think Jonathan kind of touched on where I think the kind of, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but where the kind of synergies are really is that I think it's that understanding for of the sports kind of industry and the sports integrity kind of landscape that we're able to then I think work with signify on and kind of assist whether that's the even whether that's on a kind of macro scale the kind of almost like the politics of the sports integrity industry and how how certain things work you know different sports are different you know like you know the governance in one sport the governance in football is going to be very different to the governance in tennis where you're dealing with multiple the governance uh, in football to be fair well yeah <laughs> from, from country to country league to league is very different the, as well de yeah. definitely when you have you know when you have something like tennis where you've got multiple kind of well they're not governing bodies essentially but you know you've got multiple stakeholders there you know they're going to have different viewpoints how that works together um again how you're dealing with one team sport versus individual sports etc and are you seeing from from you know i'm very much with you on this shifting i like to think uh shifting approach to more holistic interpretation of integrity rather than just you know anti-doping infringement or, or or a match fixing scenario to this broader wider encompassing of like you know making sure we've got the competition integrity make sure we've got the structural governance integrity and the integrity of protecting 
uh, and looking after the welfare of these participants. How does it, you know, with the sort of data that you're dealing with, and you're used to obviously going back and forth and putting, you know, you can listen back to previous podcasts in terms of putting together packs of information and, and sharing those with governing bodies. How do, what, what obligation, I guess, or what work have you guys now doing, either collectively or individually, in terms of like equipping, you know, because it's all well and good us talking about, that, hey, these are problems, you need to do stuff. And then no doubt the question comes back of how we, what are we supposed to do with this information you're giving us? How are you presenting it? So can you shed some light on that for me? Yeah, I think, and, and just, just quickly to go back onto your point around the kind of, uh, that kind of integrity space and definition widening, I, I think that is the way it's going. I think we've seen, um, so over in Australia, you know, there's now Sport Integrity Australia, a kind of overarching body that, that everything is now reporting into. I, I think that is the way it's going to go. I think there's going to be other countries following that. And, and to be clear, for those people listening. Yeah. Sorry, that's, yeah. That's, that's, no, no, no. The, the bit I was going to, um, sorry, expand on, because we talked about this, uh, uh, you know, just prior to this, we just had a nice lunch, but the, um, um, you're not suggesting, I know you're very, you in particular are very, uh, you know, keen to, to highlight these type of things, you're not suggesting that there's this like individual who's just an integrity expert. You're no. saying specialist experts who come together to work collaboratively to yeah. tackle the issues. I, th- I think that's yeah, that, that is important. You know, it shouldn't, you know, there shouldn't be one person who then, and, and that is an issue. Let's be honest, across sport, that, that you quite often, especially the smaller sports, and this is where the questions, you know, that's why people come to us and say, how can how can we maybe help? Because you have sometimes one integrity officer. If you're lucky, you have one integrity officer who's looking at all these different areas. You know, a lot of federations, governing bodies, they've got one integrity officer, they're kind of half an integrity officer. They're kind of doing a few bits and pieces and a bit of integrity, you know, in kind of inverted commas. So yeah, I think that's important. I think I think the benefit of having a, a kind of wider agency is you're pooling those resources. And obviously they're whether or not there's crossover in the bad actors is another is another question. Um, but there's certainly que- there's certainly expertise that could be shared in investigating and working across those those things. So I do think that's the kind of way um, that the industry will be going. So, so again, in the sector we're in, mm-hmm. and you know, we've talked about this before. That, that I know you are both. Commer- we're a commercial entity. You guys are commercial entity. You know, everyone's got to you know pave their way and everything else. So it's not as if we're, I'm just not trying to paint this sort of rosy picture. But given where sport is at this moment in time, particularly on these type of issues, a genuine collaborative approach and multidisciplinary approach is it would seem to me anyway not only um, a nice thing to have but a necessity. Yeah, and I think sometimes, I know, I know that in the past, you know, if, you, if you've been to any conferences, sports conference with an integrity conference in the last five years, you know, it's like kind of collaboration bingo, right? Every time, every time that word gets said. But it, but it is important, I think, especially across something like this, where we've already discussed it sits a lot acro- across a lot of um, posts, potentially. Does it sit with the clubs? Does it sit with the federations, the governing bodies, the rights? So, you know, it, it has to be collaborative because there's not an easy answer to that. It, there isn't a, yes, it should sit with person A in this federation across the whole of sport. It's just not going to happen. So I think it is important that, well, really important that everyone, and you know, that's why we've got involved with Stats Perform as well. We are a stakeholder within sport, whether that's from a commercial side. Yeah, and part of that is from a commercial side. Obviously, we have a vested interest in that, you know, we buy sports rights and we have an interest in the valuation of them. Um, but, you know, also we want to be responsible stakeholders as well and see this as a kind of everyone has a duty of care kind of to, to, to the wider uh, around sports um, but just to come back on to the I think the the question around what what can kind of sports do I think we've touched on it a little bit I think Jonathan can get into the kind of actual specifics but you know it's that kind of I think we would recommend 
doing that first initial almost study, and it doesn't have to be a year-long study. Like that's great. Obviously, the PFA. That's I'd say that's the kind of gold standard to 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 look at something like that. But you know, whether it's a shorter study, what does this issue look like in your sport? Because if you don't know what it looks like, it might be that the problem isn't as bad as you think potentially. It might be that you've got a really specific problem that's more unique to the nature of your sport. Um, you know, I think Jonathan's mentioned some of the women's sports of having slightly different kind of threats or the makeup of the, of the abuse. So if you can do that piece initially, I think that enables you to take much better action, whether that's preventative. You're always going to need that crisis management piece. Is that, is that just good advice um, in terms of the integrity space yeah, broadly uh, in terms of, you know, and, I, and, and, and I'm sorry to labour that point, but it does seem to me sometimes in this space and given what we've talked about before as well about the where sport is in this maturity in terms of this business functions and structures and so forth there's a lot of great people in there but they're you know if some have had more resources than others yeah. and there's all different politics involved the recommendation if you're in this area you want to you want to do something take a stop is, is your recommendation to take a stop and do a, a hard look and 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 that's where and obviously i'm not i'm not here you know there's no money going across the table on this so it's not like they're getting paid to say this but peter speak to people like you or i could say other yeah. professionals yeah. or another right, another right? Yeah, and, and another kind of service provider. But I think you're right, and I'll, I'll hand over to, to, to Jonathan around some of the specifics, but I think that's across, you know, and I've kind of got my, uh, you know, I've, I've come from that law enforcement background, and, and it's that kind of, you need to take a step back and look at the threats from a more strategic perspective, I think, as well. Identify that kind of horizon scanning, where are your threats across all of these integrity issues to enable you to put the resources in place to act Accordingly. And that's going to be better, isn't it, in terms of, you know, you need to deal with stuff when it comes up anyway, the crisis type of management. But more broadly, it's going to prepare you then. Should should that happen, you're going to yeah, react to it, it in a more exactly. effective and way. I think the last thing I'll say on that, though, is there is the challenge, right? We're talking about we're, we're talking about a bit of a perfect world there. You know, I've been in that situation. If you are that integrity officer, do you have the luxury to spend your time doing a more strategic piece of work to identify your threats now you'd hope so but the reality is is you're probably going to be dealing with day-to-day -day stuff we've already mentioned do you have other things apart from just integrity so we are talking about having a, a bit of a, of a luxury of time i think yeah i must admit i'm a sucker for for talking about idealistic worlds and like you know these people have got endless amounts of time so i think it's a very good point because you know it, it can feel i should imagine if you're in these organizations that you you're just being like Asked to do more and more and more, and you go like you know, I'm just struggling to get for every day, uh, let alone having time to be strategic. And and again, that's I guess I I refer to the sports market as, and you know, you run your own your own business, Jonathan. You know what this is like, as in terms of like a startup, right? Like as in, you know, you get like they've got more success than they can manage almost, right? So they're just constantly firefighting often with all the different areas. Um, Jonathan, what what would you like to see happen in terms of? Um, either action you know individual clubs or leagues or federation can take or if you want to tackle this uh, I guess question from a, a, a broader sporting landscape well, I think I think Nick's you know hit the nail on the head I think you, you can't deal with the problem until you know what it looks like so you've got to have that focus first and understand the size and scale and to the point you've just made about um, you know almost opening Pandora's box and then having to deal with everything that comes out of it um, you know in, until you've got a good grasp of what the issues are what the volume looks like you cannot begin to prepare to how, how to deal with it we have got proactive preventative solutions there are other ones out there as well we're not the only one but there are lots of solutions out there i think lots of them need to be tried out um 
but you know we know from we know from experience that you can proactively see some of these problems coming you can see as nick mentioned earlier spikes of abuse coming your way and um, you can pick them up when they're on the rise and you can try and deal with that if you can then create proper joined up approaches with we keep referring to it as sort of real world and digital world you know on, in the digital world if you're picking up um, a spike of abuse let's say let's say um, you know uh, we, we've actually seen this in real life we saw uh, West Ham against Spurs uh, we were covering a weekend of um, uh, data across the Premier League and we saw outpacing all other issues even you know straight straightforward racism online outpacing all of those other things we saw a big spike leading up towards a match that was taking place on a sunday lunchtime between these two teams where you saw quite clearly anti-semitic abuse going in one direction and um you know um sort of abuse uh, targeting um travelers gypsies uh, going the other way um from the spurs fans uh, targeting the um the west ham fans and you see this on the rise across the Saturday leading up to the Sunday. Within that, there are a number of accounts that you can pick up. There are a number of accounts that you can actually link to season ticket holders who are going to be at that game. And that crossover of real-world security, where you've got a, an in-stadium manager, security manager of a stadium, who's got access to a season ticket list, who's got access to member lists. They know where these people are going to be sitting. They know how they can keep an eye on them. They know, in some cases not to let them in the stadium because they are troublemakers and they've proven that and you've got evidence pulled together that proves that. It's that joined up approach that's needed here. And and, and so you just made me think, like let's run through a scenario and again, the thing that, 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 that I would imagine, particularly with live events that you want to avoid is these high-risk scenarios, right? Because in, in any area, particularly integrity services though, you know, what you don't want to happen is that you are passed information and data, which is the big potential problem i could see here is that you get past the data don't act on it because you didn't have the systems in place and even if again it wasn't a lack of desire and no doubt there'll be in, in, you know independent investigations like we saw the breach that you know the security breaches at the uh, at the euros hindsight's a wonderful thing it never looks great when it's like you didn't do this you didn't do that you must be in a scenario where we've actually identified this as high risk we tried to do it and there's a, a very good reason why we couldn't get to it rather than oh we had the data didn't do anything with it but the only way you're going to get to positioning yourself so you can do something with it is to do something yeah, with it's, it. it's the same you problem we've seen in anti-doping right like you know i remember the welsh fa who got so the Welsh Rugby Union, sorry, who got absolutely hammered for being really proactive on anti-doping. And rather than the message should have been, oh, they're being really proactive. They were like, oh no, they've been prosecuting more people for for, for, for doping offences. And you're like, they were doing a whole big push of anti-steroid push. Um, and, you know, they, you, you, that, you'll know as a communication specialist, right, getting that narrative right. And I think if we can, you know, I think we just need a bit more of a, probably a bit more of an honest assessment sometimes in sport that it's not a perfect environment and just accept that and try and move on. I, I think the thing is, though, it obviously is easy with hindsight to look back. And you, we've had so many, you know, there's been so many kind of um, audits or investigations where you look back and, and, and issues have been highlighted. But it's just getting the processes in place because the fact is people make, mistakes things things do go wrong sometimes but then you're going to be looked at and going did you have the processes in place has this been has this been recorded you know has have you gone through and, and that isn't that isn't difficult really people make mistakes occasionally you might have dealt with something incorrectly but at least if you can then show well look actually we have a process for this 
this decision was taken. This was the reason why it was taken. It may have been the wrong, but you know, it's not an ex- sports. You know, in all organisations should should have that in place so that we can see why that's been taken. I think. Do you think, like in you know, I, I always said in safeguarding more broadly that it was going to be a sad day when this happened, but it was inevitable, where the economic impact of the abuse of athletes started to affect the sports in which, and I don't think we're still quite there. Sadly, it's getting there, where it's significant enough that they create a wider equivalent right and they take enough action that it gets everyone's attention because they can relate the harm to economic loss uh, or economic gain or lack of economic gain and so in this space is there a sort of like you know do you th- well let me pose the question because um you are the guest after all <laughs> I think, uh, I, know list, what, I think list, I know what's coming here, Sean. List, yeah, listeners are going like, uh, oh, here he goes again. Edit, edit this out. <laughs> um, um, but the, <laughs> um, do you think there is an exercise here to to put a quantitative, you know, sort of economic value to this in terms of what it means to an organisation that has to react rather than be proactive? So you were saying earlier, Jonathan, that it's not a, a huge economic, you know, cost to do something on this. If we could, maybe there was a, some you know, model there to say that in this scenario, this costs you this, and it, you, know, you could be more proactive by investing here, but maybe we, it might be more palatable, let's say. I mean, it, it, you know, obviously there are across, let's go back to that wider integrity question again. Yeah, you know, there obviously are economic costs, you know, to, to your brand if you have integrity crises across, you know, the whole, whether it's the whole sport, whether it's the club, whether it's the, you know, the, the, the specific tournament. You know, we've seen across the match-fixing in the past where leagues have effectively gone under um, or competitions have become have become tarnished so I mean there definitely is you would hope or one would hope kind of that there's an understanding of that and it doesn't necessarily need to be quantified in a number put because then it does start to feel a little bit like more hopeful than me well maybe I just know in the pressure where people are trying to get attention in in a competitive environment sadly it's you know when you know if people I just think it's easier, even if morally people want to do something about it, sometimes it can cause a lack of action. Whereas if if you're reporting in to someone and their measure of success is about how much money they make or save, and you can say that, it just makes it easier to get the attention. But a lot of this is about brand. A lot of what you're talking about is about brand impact and impact on commercial revenues to a club, to uh, to a team, to a league. And don't have to look very far past you know Yorkshire County cricket right now to see the kind of impact and the kind of you know cost that that can actually um, have on a, have on a club or have on a sport with all these sponsors pulling their pulling their sponsorship left right and center when when a brand becomes toxic because something's happened but I would take a step back from all of that my biggest concern my biggest concern in all of this and it hasn't happened yet but it's going to and you don't need a crystal ball to know it's going to happen is eventually a player and athlete is going to commit suicide. They're going to receive such weight of abuse that's coming their way and it will be the reason for them taking their own life. And, you know, I'm, I'm just waiting for that headline. I, so I, I know it's coming. Joe, I, I don't disagree with you. And there was, um, uh, and I forgive, the, uh, forgive me, I'll try and re-record this if I can. Um, Suicide Watch, I believe, is the uh, charity lady was um, something we were doing. Southampton Football Club did a fantastic uh, safeguarding uh, program last week. And they invited me to just talk about more broader issues that were involved. But it was just great, to be honest with you, listening to uh you know sporting chants to former players to, to people at the club and one of the things that i was really pleased to hear that i hadn't really given much thought to was the fact that they in their academy have 
um, an education program to talk to families who house young players about issues around suicide. And so there are organisations that I'm sure there are many others who, are, who have got that on their on their agenda. But I think it's a it's a it's a really uh, uh, troubling thing to think about yeah. but you can absolutely you're you, you know you can, you're right you can see it happening and again i wonder if you know through this you know from the lens of as you're saying safeguarding more you know more more rounded well-being that it becomes a a great tool because also you know we were talking about this in terms of like social media approaches from agents and other there's a whole bunch of interrelated issues there that where if you look to you know someone communicate it you know you're I'm telling you you're the, you're the expert you know, someone communicating with someone through a digital platform and they're doing it, whether it's from an in, a match fixing perspective, from an antidoping perspective or from an abuse perspective, there's a certain scenario and you're all saying tracking about that data. There is those synergies there. And so there's a There's already some mechanisms within some organisations in which they could just see almost seamlessly fit in, it would seem, in such as like a safeguarding environment where it becomes their responsibility. And, and again, I'm you know, super impressed with Southampton just because they've got board level, I think some other clubs as do as well, so forgive me if you don't, but they've got board level responsibility quite clearly uh, for someone to... Really I think they're the exception to the rule. I think that there are a few clubs who are doing a very, very good job. We've we've seen that directly, um, but I'd probably count it on one hand in, wow. terms, in terms of those that I think are really excelling at this. The rest, maybe they don't have the resources. Mm. Maybe that's an argument you can yeah. make. But also you move down to grassroots level and, and, you know, they definitely don't have the resources there to deal with these kinds of things. So it needs responsibility right at the top, um, you know, uh, sort of federation level. You need to have that responsibility up there and have it filtered down across the game. You need... Do you, can I ask you something? There's a communication specialist, you know, someone had been in the political landscape. And the one thing that, that you know, from background, as people know, I thought I needed to understand the law to be... Uh, influential in the world and then you go actually I know, need to know a bit of economics oh actually I need to understand politics if you actually want to affect positive change and the, the, clearly the Premier League clearly the FA clearly the EFL clearly there as you were saying there's a whole bunch of people who want to make things better uh, and, and make change and I know this both personally and from speaking to people like yourselves and people I've spoken to what do you think is the problem of, or what do you think is the the biggest barrier, I guess, in order to happen? Because I don't think, some would argue, and I'm very sympathetic to that, that there is a genuine lack of will in the sense of it's not as high up the priorities. But I don't, I, I don't know even sure that's necessarily the case if it's not like a structural issue. But someone who, who's got that sort of wider political sort of understanding, do you think that there is a a one particular barrier or what do you, you know what's your perception I, I don't think there's one barrier i think there's probably lots of barriers i i've seen from pretty much all of the authorities that you've just mentioned we've seen people within each of those organizations who have definitely got the will um and in some cases they're doing some very very good very positive initiatives to try and deal with this problem most of them are more let's say campaign led it's about raising awareness you know, attention of the issues. I don't think there's enough dealing with the actual problem from a preventative standpoint. I think there needs to be more of that. Um, it's, I said at the beginning, it's still a victim-led issue. Um, and I think turning that around is very difficult, but there are solutions out there. And um, even at... So it's a practical application, you know, and as everyone knows who, who tunes into Law and Sport, we're, we're obsessed with practical application of yeah. what we do. And so what we're talking about, it's easy for people to do campaigns um, or easier for people to do campaigns and get political backing because you can get buy-in. But, yeah, but actually, but the, the players have had enough. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. athletes, players. I, I spoke to some this week who have just 
had it. If you put another campaign in front of them, they will they will walk out the room. They're not interested. They want real action. They want something to actually change. And you know, you can read on the back pages professional footballers talking about this all the time, but they just feel like there's not enough happening. And you know, they need to see deterrence. They need to see. Uh, it's great that we've started to see a few arrests off the back of this. Um, as I said earlier on, I think that law enforcement actually, with the resources they've got, they're doing a phenomenal job in, in most places. Um, but you need to put a, a statement mark on this problem um, at scale. And it's not just one arrest, it's hundreds of arrests. It's not just um, you know uh, a thousand tweets taken down, it's a thousand accounts yeah taken down you know those are the kinds of issues that we need to see and the kind of solutions that we need to see de- dealing with them and, and i could look this is something that i'm deeply passionate about as you guys know as I'm, I'm sh- and as you guys are and i could talk about this yeah and i think it needs to be talked about for hours um i had the privilege with bradley pitchard who's a, who's a great individual who is uh um someone i've met through through sports law who was a former player at charlton was a was in scouting and then trained as a lawyer now does a lot of stuff with helping young academy players as the you know kind individual does sporting ways is, is his organization he invited me to come down to charlton to talk to um some of the academy players and one of the things that he did was a brilliant session if anyone wants to find out more about that brilliant stuff he was doing there building confidence teamwork etc one of the things that we did was this um and it was bradley's totally bradley's idea which was to do this um dragon's den type approach right what's the problem we're trying to solve in football one of them came up was was with this is four years ago now three years ago was to do with racist abuse right what do you do at grassroots at racist abuse at kids games right and it was fascinating to listen to the players debate whether or not you should ban parents (laughs) right or ban the kids Right, so if the parents are racist, do you ban the kids? And there was this absolutely wonderful debate that, I, as I said to them, these are the issues that I've literally heard top lawyers have exactly the same conversations. These are you; they really identified what the problems were. They're very clear on what they they thought they were and what actions, rightly or wrongly, what actions should be taken. They're willing to, to to debate those out. It was absolutely brilliant. I think you know that group of cohort could easily have a have careers in law if they don't continue in football. The reason why I bring this up is not to to, to dote on the fact that I, that I went into Charlton, was to look at something that Fief Pro talk about all the time, and they've just done this great report on on abuse in football, which is like football is high risk because you know the environment that it is a brilliant sport, but it's high risk environment because the attention it attracts, and I think it's just a fantastic report. As well, players do the similar thing. To what point do we actually get? And you have been talking about these players. Do we get the players in? Because for me, that the players. And, you know, we talk about the PFA, which is great and, you know, doing a great job. But the actual players themselves, the, the people who are on the front line, who sometimes just cut through all the noise and clearly, as you're saying, say, look, this is enough. Why can't they just do this? And sometimes they're free from some of the politics and, you know, and I'm a huge believer in diversity of thought. They just bring a different perspective that can be like, hey, you know, no one's actually thought about that. Why aren't we doing this? What To what degree, the world's longest question again, so I apologise, to what degree do you think the players should be involved from, and particularly from the off on this particular issue? Well, you've seen the kind of impact that they can have. You've seen the Marcus Rashfords and then the kind of power that they can have when they do things. I couldn't agree more with you um, that, you know, the more that we see players taking action, the more that we see, I think it's going to take a player to stand up and walk out of a game or to refuse to play or to... to but to be fair, we've seen that though, right? We have already seen that in the sense of like... Yeah, yeah, but it needs, I think, more of a movement um, that to, 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 to take action there. I mean, I... I you talk about your Charlton example. My example comes from 
you know, youth football. I remember I remember playing a football match as a kid and um, the parents were, you had parents on both sides of the pitch. This is before all parents had to go on one side of the pitch behind a, a, a line. You had the parents screaming abuse at each other um, from both sides of the pitch. And I happened to know the captain of the opposing team and I went up to him and we had a, I was the captain of my team, he was captain of his team. We, we had a quick chat and we said, that this is ridiculous. We can't, we can't carry on like this. We got all of our players to sit down, cross our arms and our legs and wait for the parents to shut up before we carried on playing. Now, I'm not suggesting that you're going to see that in a Premier League match. But, you know, the, 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 the premise is the same. We need to see something like that where all these fans, all these spectators are paying their money to watch this happen, to watch these games take place. And those players, if they don't see enough change taking place outside of the game by the, the authorities who are supposed to be looking after them, they're going to need to do something like that. And do you not think that one of the things I was thinking about, if you look at, um, so you just made me think, and there's something probably worth stating. I'm not sure if you agree with this statement. But in my belief that the majority of people in the world, right, are good people, want to do the right thing and, and, and everything else. And when you look at football fans, there is some absolutely fantastic behaviour, for example, where a fan suddenly gets ill, the players and the fans, right? You know, someone in the stadium gets hurt the, the fans are directing them you know and then if you look at what happened in a travis scott concert in the us right in comparison and you, we were talking about this at home we're saying you know in football football fans in the middle of as as, as, as you know as fanatical as they can be at times they recognize when someone else is injured they all, all of a sudden stop or where you know maurice Barambo or or like you know others they stop right? i was there uh, yeah. i was there oh, for that wow. so uh, you know i remember exactly what it felt like and, 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 we, and you do. Yeah, right. And so my point is that there seems to be like, you know, the one thing that connects people in sport office, you know, and it somehow gets polluted. But there is a, this, you know, the one thing we all do love about the sport is the power of sport. They can do these different things. And we're focusing on negativity. But is it the case that we're getting a, you know, obviously sport reflects what goes on in wider society. But is it like, you know, a minority of people, right, who are, who are causing, you know, the, the majority of the problems here and therefore we need to be careful as well to encourage the you know, be celebrate the yeah, good the good stuff yeah that's it's, going. it's a good point it's a good point you make uh, and actually we looked we looked fairly recently because um uh wilf zahar of crystal palace recently two weeks ago i think it was posted um a number of instagram dms that he'd received and um you know he was making the point he gets this all the time it's it's a disgrace um and you know something really needs to be done about it and he's absolutely fed up of receiving that he's fed up of receiving that stuff and no one's no one's protecting him but when we looked in the first um, project restart study that we did for the pfa we did see these big spikes because he this is the second time he's done this the first time he posted a bunch of um public tweets that came his way uh to to highlight the issue within that study we then saw a massive spike of a huge volume of tweets mentioning his name, mentioning his handle, being directed at him, targeting him. It's worth mentioning, and we keep losing track of this, the vast majority of those were supportive. The vast majority. I mean, there were thousands of mentions of the word sorry. You know, we feel sorry for you. We're so sorry this is happening to you, and disgrace. And, you know, we, we, we counted the number of times we saw those words being mentioned. There is positivity. There is support out there. But within the minority... There was abuse, and, and there was a and we're, and we're trained as well. through, as we know now, through cognitive science, right, to pick up on the negative, like as you're saying, the threat, right? We we are geared to perceive a threat, and the threat 
or perception of threat far outweighs any positives. It's like with children, was it they say is it you have to say five times something positive, you say one negative, you have to reinforce positive messages five or more times for it to have the same impact. And so it seemed to me you can totally understand from a player's perspective. In all you're not gonna you know, if everyone's being really nice to you and you just get you know, whatever the percentages of negative comments stands out, you know, and you hear about, you know, if you ever, you know, the Joe Rogan podcast is so popular, but you hear this all the time when you hear about him without talking to other celebrities and comedians to say, look, don't look at the, the negative. I remember listening to Marcus Radford talk, I think he was doing an interview for Man United TV and he was, I think it was him who said, I just don't, I just don't look, I just don't look, I've like, like switch yeah. off after a game, I just switch off and obviously he's an exceptional individual in terms of his strength of mind and character and we can't expect everyone to have that <laughs> no know? no we, yeah. we saw um, Michael Richards another one uh, he did a really good documentary about a year ago um, looking at racism in football and you know he said when I first started off I was really struggling to deal with it when the posts were coming my way um, it really hurt me every single time but then slowly you know he became a little bit more immune to it but he grew, his status as a player grew, he became more successful, he could deal with these things more, he's a stronger individual as he's become a more experienced player, and he can deal with that. But for every Mark, for, for every Michael Richards, you know, there's there's a hundred grassroots players or it's a Jason Lee. Players. Do you remember yeah. Jason Lee who was yeah. like who was like made a his haircut? Who now the, works for the PFA and is right, doing some absolutely amazing right, things and, on and, the issues. And because he was like really targeted, and it was meant to be like you know quote unquote banter from fantasy, Dillon, yeah. Skinner, yeah. And but it really affected him, right? From what he said, I don't know him. But like from what he said uh, publicly, he was like actually really affected him. And, you know, we can't expect everyone to be resilient. Um, so, Nick? Yeah, yeah, I think that it kind of ties into this idea that I think still the kind of general public have this idea of, they and they, they see the kind of elite level footballers and they think, well, they're these cosseted players who are earning all this money. How can this kind of be issues? But, you know, they are still employ the employees of the, the clubs that they play for. There's still a duty of care around that, you know. Yeah, and, I, and I'd hope we'd moved on from, it, it's like... Um, I don't know if you remember back. Also, full disclosure, I'm a Forest fan, so you know I love Jason Lee. But <laughs> but you know, um, and then another ex-Forest player. I remember Stan Collymore coming out, and, and you know that was how long ago now? Maybe 20, 20 years ago. Was saying I'm I'm suffering from depression, and he was widely mocked. And and it was like even his manager at the time said, "How on earth can he be depressed? He's earning X amount of money uh, a week." Yeah, yeah. Now I hope that we've moved on from that. In in you know the kind of uh, mental health realm, and especially in male mental health and things, for someone to come out wouldn't be, you know, and, and kind of mocked in that way uh, now. But um, I still think there is that tendency. And as, as Jonathan says, he's you know, it's human beings. And coming back to that bit we almost started a while ago, talking about having this victim-led process, you know, in my mind, you're having to imagine you're getting, I mean, I, I saw an article a couple of months ago from Troy Deeney saying, yeah, I'll get 30 to 40 messages a week that I have to report. Now, I would expect he's almost having to relive that abuse every time you have to go through it and report that. As Jonathan said, if you do a uh, victim abuse, uh, victim impact statement, whatever, that, again, that's the same well, thing well, over uh, and over uh, again. Yeah, and also, so it's a great point you raised that, that, that this is on sort of, you know, your traumatic experiences, What you know, because the brain apparently can be hardwired. Once you have a trauma experience, right, again, you're, you know, it, you, you know, as you are saying, you can relive that. Well, a lot of these players, male, female, uh, gay players, you know, pick, pick a demographic, a Asian cricket, you know, to get what they've got, they've gone through a lot, <laughs> right? So it's not like they're just sitting pretty and all of a sudden they're just now getting some abuse, right? They've, there's, they've had to go through 
often, unfortunately, some horrific scenarios and, and treatment already. And so it's put into that context, it makes it worse. The one thing I did think, Hayley Bennett, who was a um, Kick It Out, brilliant lady, um, she was telling me years ago that they used to do, you know, do, Kick It Out used to do some fantastic stuff. They had these young kids who basically, like the, the, the keyboard warriors, you say, and they'd get them and they'd be like, right, you've got to do training, otherwise basically you're going to be, you know, you're going to get in trouble with the police. And she said often what happened is that the, the, there was just a, a genuine lack of understanding about, for, for a lot of these youngsters in terms of what was abuse or not abuse, why it would make someone feel a certain way. And she, it was really interesting to her, her perspective on that. She wasn't justifying it, which was just definitely saying there's you know a proactive education uh point here as well yeah i mean I'll, I'll, I'll hand over to jonathan but i think i think yeah clearly they're different people and different groups of people kind of who are doing this abuse online and some of them might be like you say the young young people who they need that that, that kind of education uh program and i i, I can't remember the, ner- the the specific case but there has been cases where you know there's been that kind of, of the, the footballers then met up with that individual and explained explained how that's made them feel and stuff and then you know but then there are going to be people who are the kind of you know i don't want to say like died in the wall races but you know there's there, people who are just not gonna mm. i think change as well so, again on the on the joe rogan podcast there was a great uh, jazz i think he's a jazz musician who had become he's written a book on it apparently about who basically befriended people from the ku klux clan because he was in the south i mean incredible character right and the they just you know, they, he talks about all of their their beliefs and stuff like that. But his whole book was about having dialogue. It was like you can't make change by telling people just something. You have to have dialogue. And he, this guy is incredible, like in terms of you know changing people's perceptions and and their opinions. And it absolutely, you know, it takes exceptional people to do things like that. But he was you know really into the fact that, that unless we get down and communicate in the way that they understand and you know talk about talk these things through just telling people to do something is not going to make a, a huge amount of difference in his opinion. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I mean, there is there is a space. I know we kind of put down the word campaigns quite a lot. There is a space for campaigns out there. There is a space for them to educate and to help certain groups understand where they're doing wrong and how they can improve and you know what, what offensive really, really looks like. And there are some really good campaigns out there. I mean, B- BT Sport are running a fantastic. It looks amazing. Yeah, I BT, mean, you know, all great the, the kits that they have, sort of, uh, you know, Rio Ferdinand and Gareth Bale, and you know, it it looks absolutely incredible. And I know that behind that, there is actually some ideas around um, identifying, and they use, I think, they use AI to a degree as well to identify where there's some abuse, and they slot in underneath one of those messages. They report the message. And then they slot in um, a, a sort of comment saying this is discriminatory and this is why. And I think that's fantastic. And, you know, the more of that we see, the better as far as I'm concerned. But you still need to take more action and you still need that. None of that is going to get, you know, at best, you may be having a tweet taken down or a post taken down. You need to get to the source of the problem. And there's not enough of that going on. There just isn't. No. So, so. Right, what I'm taking away from this is, and you know, a conversation to be continued, is that we need to put resources in the, as you know, ob- obvious, you know, as you're saying, it's like the uh, integrity, <laughs> integrity bingo. I'm going to start using that now. Thanks for that. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll always cite you, though. I'm not keen on, on the site and the source, as everyone knows. But the, um, you know, the integrity bingo, you know, give, you know, give more focused attention to this issue, particularly under, making a, a, understanding what the problem is looking for a, a, a solution to that problem, the true solution to that problem. 
the big area that's not being taken as far as you're concerned at the moment is the individual you know action and the care of the what's going on with the players supported within that then you know address that now bring it into this wider integrity from a structural point to address some of these other points including the education piece they're both nodding <laughs> or it's either they're both nodding or i've just cut them off so they're, so they're my we're still here <laughs> look guys um you know i was delighted to do this podcast as you know when we spoke about this before this is a, a you know a fundamentally important topic that i think that we need to understand better what to do i think it's an incredibly complex area because of most people don't you know as we found out with all the stuff going on with instagram a lot of people have got no idea of the scope and scale of what's going on digitally at the moment how that's impacting people's behaviors and so forth and then so to tackle these issues and in a world where we just had covid you know brexit yeah. uh, you know the world's a very strange place at times anyway the best of times have particularly been difficult so i think it's hard for people to grasp some of these issues um and they're being flooded with data um so thank you for shedding light on it thank you for the work you're doing in this space i know that it's a heartfelt work that you're doing and i hope in, you know if you're listening to this and it's a you know, an area that you think is of interest, uh, of importance, please either reach out to myself or reach out obviously to the speakers directly, to, to Nick and to Jonathan, you know, and, you know, the one thing that people always told me is that, you know, the first, and, you know, some great people like Elaine Banton, who's just a fantastic, who's spoken at our previous conferences, saying like, you know, make sure you hold yourself accountable. You know, what action are you taking? So if you care about this topic, do something. <laughs> um, other than that, look, I think we've got room to be optimistic about all of this with people like yourselves and others coming together. I think we can make some inroads. So, you know, on that note, thank you for the work you're doing again. It's going to be great to see what impact you can have and what other parties can have. Hopefully we can do our bit to help with that. And thank you so much for tuning in. If you did like the podcast, I always say to people, look, we don't take any advertorial content. That's not how we do things. We go by word of mouth. So if you enjoyed the podcast, if you enjoyed what the speakers said, I guess said today, please reach out to them. Please do share it with other people. And of course, if you learn something, do take the time to distill that and share that. That's quite a powerful thing to do. And thank you for tuning in. And remember, for all the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, go to lawinsport.com, find us on Twitter, SoundCloud, iTunes, Instagram, LinkedIn, pretty much everywhere you can imagine we're, we'll be there. Yeah, and wherever you are, whatever time of day it is, wherever you are, I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks so much for tuning in. <laughs>